uh, as we continue here, or actually just start to wrap up Job, this is our final week on Job, and we'll be in the final chapters of the book, and there's a lot here that we could cover. I see why so many pastors who have gone before have spent longer than six weeks in this book, because uh, there's a lot we could cover. But I think, I think we'll get a good sense of the main points that God is teaching in the, this final act. And uh, just as a refresher, so far as we've uh, been going through the book of Job, um, that large middle point where Job is on trial and putting God on trial, and he's on trial with his friends and on trial with God, um, Job's been demanding sort of God's appearance. He's been demanding that he have an answer from God, that God speak, or that God come and wrestle with him, and we get this trial settled one way or the other. And in all this time that Job has been making these demands and asking for this to happen, God has not appeared. He didn't show up. And we don't know how long this went on. It could have been a day, could have been a period of a couple of weeks that he had this dialogue with his friends and this wrestling uh, in dust and ashes. Um, but God has not appeared at any point so far. And then finally we reach this third act of this narrative and, and God does appear. So Job will get his wish and God will show up. And when he arrives, he arrives. It's something. God comes ready to answer, and he comes ready to wrestle with Job. And we pick this up in Job 38, verses 1 to 3. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. First of all, one thing we want to look at here is that God answers Job out of the whirlwind. And that word whirlwind, it's kind of interesting as, as Elihu is concluding his remarks in Job 37 and he's sort of the prophet that comes before God. He begins referencing in the latter parts of chapter 37 the clouds and the storms and the lightning that God commands. And, and, and now God himself speaks in thunder and is clothed in lightning, it says in 37, 9 to 20. And then at the very end, Elihu refers to God coming out of the north in 37, 22. And, and so it may well be here that that as Elihu is sort of concluding his comments about God, he literally sees God coming out of the north in a whirlwind. And that's why he's describing to Job the power that God has in thunder and lightning and the whirlwind. And so as chapter 38 opens, we see that God does indeed speak out of this tornado that arrives. And the word for whirlwind here is only used about 16 times in the whole Bible. It's the word Sarah. And it's often used as an expression of power and righteousness of God. And, and one of the best descriptions of this whirlwind of God, if you want to look it up, uh, we actually see this described more fully uh, in Ezekiel uh, 1.4. And the prophet Ezekiel says, I looked and I saw a windstorm, same, same word, whirlwind coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. And the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And then he goes on in Ezekiel. You'll remember the passage, and it talks about in amazing detail what Ezekiel saw of God surrounded by four angels with wings and faces like lions and eagles and oxen and all those things. That's this whirlwind, right? So this whirlwind comes. We don't get the full description in Job. And God speaks out of this whirlwind a tornado with lightning and a center like burning metal. And so right off the bat, this is 
Clearly God showing up now on the stage in Act 3. This is not some ordinary storm. He's not leaving Job any doubt. And then he says, Gird up your loins like a man. So if that's not terrifying enough, this whirlwind showing up and God speaking, God then says to Job, Get ready for combat. Brace yourself like a man. Probably is what your NIV translation says. But it's literally gird up your loins. And I promised I wouldn't spend too much time on this. It's my second favorite verse in Job. (laughs) But let's be clear here. Men, you know what he's saying here, right? God is telling Job to put on his big boy pants. He's telling him to cowboy up. He's telling him to get ready to protect himself because he is about to speak. We have lots of colloquialisms for what God is communicating here. right? He's telling Job, tie up the hem of your robe, son, because things are going to get serious. You need protection. You need to be ready. I'm about to speak. Prepare yourself for action the way a man would. So you got a whirlwind, and you got God telling Job to protect himself because he's about to speak. So what does God say when he arrives to speak? In this final act, what does he say? Well, for two chapters, God goes on to ask Job a series of penetrating rhetorical questions. And it's just like a torrent of rain that's coming out of this whirlwind. Job is drenched in the questioning of God for two chapters. And I'll just touch on a few of the examples of the torrent of questions that God puts to Job and expects an answer for. Really doesn't expect an answer, uh, but demands Job think about. Four to seven, he says, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On where were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And then later he says, Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Can you bind the chains of Pallades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it in the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? So God starts asking all of these series of rhetorical questions, and I'm sure you've read this section of Job many times at various points in the past. And at this point, God asks Job at this point, will you answer me or not, he says in chapter 41 and 2. He says, are you, are you going to answer these questions or not, Job? And Job says, I cover my mouth. I spoke once or twice before, but I have nothing to say now. So Job realizes he has no answer to these things. And so then God goes on in a more pointed fashion, and God makes it clear that all of this talk about his authority in the natural world is a metaphor for his moral power. He says in Verse 8 of chapter 40, he says, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Can you look at all who are proud and humble them and crush the wicked where they stand and bury them all in dust together and shroud their faces in the grave? 
So, so God says, Job, you're trying to get into a moral argument with me. You don't even have authority over the natural world. Why would you think you have authority in the moral realm? And then God goes from here on through chapters 41 and 42 to talk about behemoth and leviathan. And, and I won't read all of that. You can remind yourself of it later today if you want. It's pretty memorable. But God focuses on these two creatures, behemoth and leviathan, to just expound again on his greatness. And there's a, a lot of discussion about who or what behemoth and leviathan are, what creatures they were. And, you know, perhaps they're sort of semi-mythological or poetic creatures that were a part of the culture of the time, sort of like today we would say dragons, you know, just sort of, you know, something that's maybe natural or based on something natural in the past but has kind of taken on mythological status. Or they could be a now extinct massive species of an existing animal, like a, like a primitive hippopotamus or a giant alligator. Um, we know that very recently certain species, especially large-bodied species, have gone extinct. The dodo bird, the woolly mammoth, the Irish elk, things like that. So, so there's theories out there about behemoth and leviathan. Maybe it's just sort of a, a species of, of megafauna, like a giant hippo or a huge alligator. I mean, even now, or a, like a giant squid, you know, these deep ocean squids that are, that are like 15 meters long, 50 feet long, where normal squids are only less than a meter. So, so we know that in the world there's these massive you know, elephants and mammoths and things like that. And so God here speaks of this, that, that you know, there's this massive alligator or there's this huge hippopotamus and, and that they're giant versions of, of what we see today. And so we can imagine this and God is saying, do you, do you fish a 2,000-pound alligator up from the river with fish hooks? You know? Do you, do you go after a 8,000-pound hippo with your little bow and arrow? Hope to beat him, you know? Do you put him on a leash for your girls, he says at one point, you know, to lead around like a puppy dog? You know, and he goes into this whole thing about behemoth and leviathan. And the bottom line of this whole monologue, when God's talking about these massive, really champions of his, he almost puts them forward like his champions. And he says, you can't even defeat my champions, let alone defeat me. He says, do you tame these monsters? Can you catch them? You can't match my authority in the natural world. Why do you think, Job, you can match my authority in the moral realm? And through all these chapters, God just inundates Job with these rhetorical questions. Why is he doing it? Well, rhetorical questioning is a device, and it's meant to cause the listener to think for themselves. Rhetorical questions unearth the fact that they already know the answer. They simply are not acknowledging it. So rather than simply feeding Job the answers, God asks Job questions that in his mind he's forced to answer. No, I, I don't know the depths of the ocean, and I don't know where the storehouses of hail and rain are, and I didn't measure out the earth, and I can't catch alligators with fish hooks. And, and so Job is forced through these rhetorical questions in his mind. He has to answer them and admit that he's already and always known. And this is what God is doing with Job. His, his questions force Job to acknowledge that he already knew the correct answers. He just was not acting faithfully on what he knew about himself and God. And they form another thing as well. They accomplish another purpose in that the magnitude of these questions shift the ground under Job's feet. And this is what God has to do with us quite often. Job has become so self-consumed 
in his trial and in his suffering and so consumed with his own righteousness and what's going on in his life, God has to come along sometimes like he does with Job and just shift the ground under our feet and say, you are not looking at the universe in the right perspective. You are sitting there on your ash heap mourning your situation and you are forgetting who is in command of all of creation. Don't look at yourself and what's going on in your circumstance, Job. Get your eyes away from there and get them on me. God has to fundamentally change Job's perspective on what is going on. And these chapters accomplish that. If you are ever losing perspective about your situation in the universe, just go to Job 38 to 42 and your perspective will change. It will shift. God will take you from where you are and he will drag your eyes up to him. And that's what he does. He shifts the ground under Job's feet. He moves his eyes from his problem to God's majesty. And so God has every intent of simply overwhelming Job with the reality of his greatness, of his godness. Because Job has begun to wander down these twisting roads of despair and getting him lost in introspection and self-pity and confusion. And so God shows up on the scene and he just blazes a clear path for Job to follow. He says, look up to your God and know your God. But what we want to know is, does this work? So this this is God's tactic. This is what God is doing. So does it work? We can wonder at God's method, but is God really delivering to Job what he needs here in his life? Well, only Job can tell us that. And so let's look at Job's response and see whether the medicine that God has brought is actually the cure. Job 42, 1 to 6 says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? He's quoting God there. He says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me quoting God again, and he says, My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What does Job's response tell us about what God has said to him? Right? We can unpack what Job has answered and see whether what God has said has accomplished God's purpose. Basically, we see that Job understands exactly what God is saying that God's rhetorical questions work their purpose perfectly. Job says, essentially, I get it. I am the one who has second-guessed your plans without knowing anything about them. I spoke of things that were too wonderful for me to know. I was speaking out of turn. I was talking about things way above my pay grade. I I, I had no idea the things that I was uttering. The word there, too wonderful for me to know, it's the Hebrew word pele for wonderful. And it refers to information in the divine realm that's beyond human understanding. And that's what Job is saying. He says, I was speaking of things that were Pele. They were were divine knowledge things that I had no business knowing. It's used five other times in Job. And every time it's used in Job, its meaning is crystal clear. So so Job knew exactly what he was saying. In Job 5.9, he says, he performed wonders or Pele that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. In 9.10, it says, he performed wonders, again, Pele, that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted, same phrase. In 10.16, he says, if I had hold in my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome, and the translated word awesome there is Pele, your wondrous 
knowledge, your wonder, power against me. And then there's a couple more, 37.5, God's voice thunders in marvelous Pele ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. Listen to this, Job, stop and consider God's wonders, Pele. Every time this knowledge or this wonder, it's always things that are beyond Job's knowledge. So Job understands. He knows what he always knew. But more importantly, he knows that he was speaking out of turn, that he is aware that what God is saying to him is true and what he was saying was not true. But more importantly, we see what he says here in terms of Job's response. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You can't go over this too quickly. So after God shows up and speaks, after God comes and lays out on the line who he is for two chapters, talking about creation, talking about animals, talking about his champions, Behemoth and Leviathan, Job says, okay, I was talking about stuff that was too wonderful for me. And then the second thing he confesses is, I thought I knew you. I had heard about you. I thought I understood you, but now I see you. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So Job's understanding of God here has been elevated to a whole new level based on what God has revealed about himself. He basically says here, I knew some facts about you. I thought I understood you from hearing about you, but now I see you with my eyes. Now think about this. We can, we can read about the Grand Canyon. We can have someone who's been to the Grand Canyon even tell us about being at the Grand Canyon and what it's like. But none of us know the Grand Canyon until we've seen it for ourselves, until you've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, until you've walked out on that glass bridge that hangs out over the gorge and you're looking down between your feet to the bottom of the canyon and you see it all displayed around you. How many people have been to the Grand Canyon? I haven't been there yet. Man, I want to go. I'm so jealous of you guys. Envious. I used the wrong word there. I'm envious of you guys. But that's what Job is saying, right? He's saying you can have the Grand Canyon described to you. You can read about it in a book. You can have somebody tell you about it. But until you've stood there and seen it, you don't know the Grand Canyon. It's the same thing as those sequoias on the West Coast, right? You can have somebody tell you about a giant redwood. You can have it described to you. Someone can go there and come back and tell you about it. But until you have stood at the roots of a 350-foot sequoia and looked up 35 stories to this tree that's probably started growing, you know, a thousand years before Jesus showed up, you don't really know sequoias. This is what, this is what Job is saying. He's saying, God, I heard about you. I read some stuff about you, maybe. I I thought I understood you, but now I see you. Now I understand. And a lot of us can be in the same situation, even as Christians, right? We can be right here with Job. We hear about God. We love what we hear about God. You know, we're in agreement with it. We even come to know God in sort of a childlike, very simple way. We, We have this sort of beginning of understanding, this kernel of faith and this kernel of understanding of God in a very simple way. And God responds to our simple faith and he responds to our simple understanding. But we don't, even as Christians, we don't immediately see God until something happens in our life where God just has to show up. And then when God arrives in our nice, safe, containable, preconceived ideas are all about God, are all thrown out the window. Because when God shows up in our life in that way, and and I know a lot of you have experienced this, 
When God really shows up and we see God, we repent of our small-heartedness. We repent of the little tiny box we thought we could keep God in. We repent of our doubt in Him that He couldn't do great things. We repent that we thought God was a very shallow puddle when in fact He is an ocean and more. And when that happens, when we see God, we sit in awe of God who has authority over forces we cannot comprehend. And when we see His purposes working in our lives in ways that we cannot comprehend and cannot understand, then we repent like Job and we say, God, I thought I knew you. I'd heard about you, but now I see you. And that's what Job does. He repents. He says, I... (laughs) I was foolish the way I was going before. I repent of that. I turn away from that, and I see you now. So if you are drifting, if you're losing your way, if God seems like a distant rumor to you, then you can always come to these last few chapters of Job and just reground yourself as Job has in the reality of God and who God is. Because Job comes to the conclusion that he has to repent. Repent just means turn, right? And he says he despises himself. He just means he, he, he thinks he realizes that what he had been doing is not what he should be doing. So then in part two, then we get the epilogue. So at the end of chapter 42, we come to the epilogue, and it's a curious ending. And we've covered it a little bit, but I'll touch on it and put it in context here. It's kind of a curious ending to such a dramatic book. It almost, it almost seems anticlimactic, right? After all of the incredible drama and emotion and tragedy and wonder that you have throughout the book of Job... We have God rebuking the friends and then reconciling Job's relationships and then God renewing Job's engagement with life. And and, and we wonder what to make of this because this final paragraph or so, you know, Job kind of gets his family restored and he gets more flocks and, you know, people show up and and he gets his fortune back. And it's almost like they all live happily ever after. You get this little paragraph kind of epilogue tacked on the end and it it just seems like, oh, it all worked out well in the end anyway. Is is, is that really what's going on here? Right? The ending can be sort of puzzling after all of the drama of the rest of the chapters of Job. And so, like everything else in this book, we have to read very carefully in order not to slip up and make a mistake right near the finish line here and understand what does this, what does this final epilogue in Job mean? This sort of the way things kind of all neatly resolve at the end. Well, one thing that we definitely don't want to read into the ending where Job gets his flocks, he gets twice as many flocks as before, and he gets ten more kids, and all of his relationships are restored. What we don't want to read into it is a return to the prosperity gospel, right? What what you don't want the message to be at the end of Job is, well, if you repent like Job did, and you do right by God, then God will bless you in this world, and he'll give you twice as much as you had before. That, That can't be the interpretation of the last few verses of Job, because that is the very idea that the entire rest of the book has been arguing against the whole way. That, that even the righteous do suffer and God is not just a vending machine that you can just simply you know, play the right tune or push the right buttons and you get a blessed life out of. So we know that that's not what it's saying. So we have to look a little more closely. And the final chapter, I think, can be simply divided into three sections as the object of each paragraph shifts The three sections are a richer relationship with God, a reconciled relationship with friends, and a renewed relationship with life. So the first one, in terms of what this last chapter is teaching in verses 1 to 6, is a richer relationship with God. And so we've already seen this in the first part of what I talked about. God speaks, 
And Job's response shows us a richer relationship with God that Job achieves. He says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. In other words, Job is saying, I hold myself in lower esteem and I repent. I turn away from my ways. When it says I despise myself, he's saying, I I was holding myself in high esteem. I was demanding that God come and speak with me. I was trying to get him summoned into court. I was demanding that God would wrestle with me. I was declaring my righteousness before God. And here, Job instead says, I despise myself. I, I lower my esteem. And I repent. I turn away from the direction I was going. I was going the wrong way, and I have to turn away from that. What is he turning away from? He's moving away from despair. He's repenting of his actions. He's moving from despair into fellowship with God. He says, I heard you, now I see you. I repent of my immaturity. I repent of my shallow understanding. I I repent of all of that, and now, as Job, I move into a richer understanding of you, God. I heard about you, now I see you. And so this last chapter, we see that when the object is Job, when the object of the text is on Job, it, it's a richer relationship with God. Job is moving into a richer relationship with God. That's when the object is on God, sorry. And then secondly, we see when the subject or the object changes to his friends, it's a reconciled relationship. And we see this in verses 7 to 9. It says in 7, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. What is the truth that Job has said about God? The truth that Job has said about God is, I was talking out of my pay grade, (laughs) about things too wonderful, that your purposes won't be thwarted, and that I repent. That's what he said. He says, so now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. So God rebukes the friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He says he's angry with them. But we see here that much of what they had to say was closely in line with the law. Right? What, this is the interesting thing we don't want to miss here. Remember when we were, when we were talking about Eliphaz and Zophar and Bildad, that much of what they were saying was actually in line with the law. They, they believed God was just. They believed that God would punish the wicked and save the righteous. They believed in the law of reaping and sowing. In other words, God is not angry because Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were, you know, liberal mainliners, right? They were not espousing some unorthodox gospel. These three friends were very orthodox in their faith. And so what is it that God is angry at about them? Because they weren't actually saying that much that was wrong about God. They were applying it wrongly to Job, but they weren't saying things that were wrong. So what is he angry at? I mean, it's, it's one thing for God to be angry with wicked people, right? We all understand that God gets angry with wicked people, but God says here he's angry at these very orthodox believers who were trying to speak his law. He's angry with orthodox religious people. Now, I'm not saying that we should be unorthodox, but what would God be angry at, at the orthodoxy of these three men, at the rightness of them? Well, I think in part it's their complete lack of compassion. They had no compassion for Job at any point in their speeches. They misused their orthodoxy. They use their orthodoxy and their orthodox theology without any compassion and any love and understanding. They used orthodoxy, they used their rightness as a hammer. And I think this is a lesson for us evangelicals. 
We can be orthodox and yet God be angry if we use orthodoxy as a weapon. Has the church in the past ever been guilty of using moral high ground as a weapon against people? Oh yeah, right? There's a lesson here, I think, in this final chapter of Job for us. That God is angry at these three men because they used orthodoxy as a weapon against Job. Now, I'm not saying be unorthodox. It's right to be right. But we have to be careful how we use our orthodoxy. They misused it. God was most angry because they were misusing and misapplying his law. And then God sends them to his servant Job for prayer and sacrifice. This is the reconciling of the relationships. And that all makes sense. But what is very interesting here is that Job apparently accepts them. I mean, these three kicked Job when he was down. How hard would it be to forgive? Right? God sends these three people who had just spent probably weeks in dialogue beating Job up when he's at his lowest point. And he says, go to my servant Job and he'll pray for you and he'll accept your sacrifice and I'll listen to his prayers. And Job's probably like, what? You're sending these guys to me for me to pray for them so that you can forgive them? Oh my goodness. But Job does it. Job prays for them and he accepts their sacrifice and he helps them get reconciled with God. Incredible. Could you do that? Could you accept the repentance of the friends that kicked you the hardest when you were at your lowest? Can you forgive the ones who hurt you at your most vulnerable? When we're in a season of deep hurt, part of the collateral damage is that once relationships that we once held close can become undone when angry and misguided words are spoken. I mean, you ever been at a low point in your life and your friends have said the exact wrong thing and in fact arguments have broken out and hurt has happened because at this low point in your life, the people that you thought were your friends ended up wounding you and the collateral damage is not just whatever trial you were going through, the collateral damage of that suffering is the broken relationships that came around it. The book of Job is not unaware of that. God is not unaware of that. And so he literally, at the end of the book, he says, you guys have got to get together and get this fixed. And so he sends the three friends to Job and he tells Job, you've got to pray for them and we're going to accept their sacrifice and their repentance. The friends repent and Job accepts and relationships are reconciled. And I think there's a lesson here for us as well about forgiveness in the midst and after the turmoil of suffering. We have to have our hearts open to reconciliation after trial. And then we also see in one final note of hope for the righteous which is a renewed relationship with life in verses 10 to 17. And this is kind of the, the fairy tale ending that we have trouble making sense of. It says, After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. You're going to talk about more in this, about this part in your life group. And they comforted and consoled him all over the trouble the Lord had brought to him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second uh, Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Now, in all of the land there were found women as beautiful 
nowhere in all of the land where they're found beautiful women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. Wow, that sounds good, eh? That's a good ending after a book like Job. So what does it mean? Right? Nothing in the book of Job so far has indicated that if you repent, then God will instantly bless you in this life with twice as much as you had before. Right? Like if you have two cottages, now you'll have four cottages. Right? If you have two motorcycles, which I happen to do now, I'd have four motorcycles. Right? So I, I need to repent so I can get twice as many motorcycles. Right? Like nothing in Job, nothing in Scripture ever says that. If somebody on TV or in some book you're reading says that if you do that, God will bless you with twice as much and expand the te- tent, pegs of your tent and all of that stuff. No, that's not what it teaches. And so, but here it is at the end of Job. So, so what do we make of it? What does this mean? It has to mean something more nuanced than just prosperity gospel because that's not a gospel at all. Well, one big statement that this conclusion for Job's life makes is that Satan has not changed any of God's plan. You have to remember, as we, as we finish the book of Job, we've got to go all the way back to chapter 1 and 2 and remember how it started, right? Satan had designs to interfere with God's purpose in Job's life. He wanted Job to deny God, and he wanted God to and he wanted to thwart the outcome that God had or the purposes that God had in store for Job. So God had purposes in Job's life, and Job was, was uh, loving God, and, and Satan wanted to destroy both of those things. He wanted Job to deny God, and he wanted God's purposes in Job's life to be destroyed. And so this ending to Job is important because it sends a very clear message that whatever mischief, whatever design Satan might have, ultimately he does not thwart God's purposes and ultimately he does not cause us to lose our faith or to deny God. So he loses is the answer to this, right? Satan loses is is what this says at the end. Satan had this, this grand plan to destroy the whole thing, and at the end, God says, yeah, my purposes weren't destroyed, and, and Job actually loves me more than ever before. Thanks for trying. And I'm going to bless him twice as much. So that didn't work out either. But it's also important for another reason. He has ten more children. And at this point, you realize God, uh, Job must have been about 70 years old when the trial first began, right? He had ten grown children. So let's say Job is 70. When, when the suffering happens, he goes through a, a tough few months, a tough year, whatever it was. His children are gone. He's no family, just his wife left. His friends are gone. Now, now he lives 140 more years, right? So he's like 210 or something when he finally dies. But he has 10 more children. And, and, and these girls that he, that he talks about so much in this text here, it's amazing. Jemima, which means dove. And and Keziah, which is the Hebrew word for cinnamon, and, and Karen Hapuk, which means a container of eyeshadow. Um, it's true, that's what it means, literally. Uh, it, it means a horn of cosmetics. Um, but because it's a girl's name, it probably means something like dark-eyed or dark eyes. right? So here's this old man. And, and at, the, at the end, he's not talking about his sons. Isn't that weird? He's not talking about his sons. In this culture, it would be all about the boys, right? But in this final paragraph, you have this, this old man who's doting on these three girls, right? He boasts about his daughters, dove, cinnamon, and dark eyes. 
And, and it's just a really sweet picture that we have of Job. At one point, he's sitting on an ash heap, scraping blisters off his skin with a pottery shard, mourning the death of his family, and yet God had plans to redeem Job. Now, does that mean that Job doesn't remember his other ten children? That there is never any sadness? I'm sure that he thought about them every day. But what we see in the final chapter here, in this final paragraph, is the sanctification of grief. We see the redemption of grief. Here we see God gives Job a glimpse of heaven. C.S. Lewis says that, the joy, that joy is the serious business of heaven. And so this ending to Job is important because like Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they, they saw even more dimly than we can see what was beyond the grave. And so God is showing Job in this life, for Job specifically, not for all of us, we're not all going to get double if we repent, but, but at the end of Job it's important that, that God gives Job a glimpse of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And so God gives Job a glimpse of the joy that is to come. He plans to wipe away every tear. He plans to heal every infirmary. He plans to restore vitality, to give life abundantly. And so at the end of Job, we see this renewed relationship with life. It's a demonstration that Satan cannot ultimately destroy and that God ultimately redeems. We know on this side of the cross that the final redemption is in heaven to come. But here God shows Job and us just a glimpse of what it is to come by renewing Job's life. He restores his life and shows him joy again. And I think there is a lesson here for us, that God does this for us too. He doesn't leave us in suffering. He doesn't leave us in trial. He doesn't leave us in pain. If we join him the way Job did, God has restoration for us. If, if we can go to those earlier chapters in Job 38 to 41 and God can shift the ground under our feet and get their, our eyes off of this world and up to him, then God has joy in store for us. God has redemption in store for us. If, if we can shift our perspective the way Job has, then there is this for us as well. Satan for all his mischief, Satan for all his scheming, does not ultimately thwart the purpose of God. God will save. God will redeem. God will bring joy. That is the concluding message of Job, that his purposes cannot be thwarted. He will bring joy and ultimate restoration. Let's pray.